It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. First, I have a confession to make. I'm going on holiday. It's been quite a year, month and week in politics, so I'm off for a lie down and a lie in. The podcast and my morning email briefing will return in late August. Obviously subscribe to the podcast via iTunes on your Android device and the next episode will download automatically when we do it. So, just over six months after taking over Red Box, this seems like a good time to take stock of the huge changes we've seen in British politics and consider what the future holds. Joining me this week are John McTernan, who wonders why Corbyn doesn't just go, Faye Schlesinger, the Times Head of News, who says the political news feast will continue for years, but first, Sam Coates, Deputy Political Editor of the Times, on the legacy of our newest ex-Prime Minister. Will David Cameron be remembered as the worst Prime Minister of my lifetime? The ex-Prime Minister, who was checking his iPhone from the backbenches during Theresa May's debut common statement on Trident, is trying to script his legacy. But with the economy wobbling, debt and deficit likely to rise faster than predicted, society divided and the Tory party nursing open wounds, his social mobility project barely started and his winning streak smashed, why bother? Right, Sam, I suppose the first thing we need to do is establish how far back we need to go. Who was, who was, who was Prime Minister when you were born? Well, I was born in 1978, so there was Jim Callaghan, but only for a year. Right, so we're not including him. So, so you think that David, do you think that David Cameron is the worst Prime Minister of your lifetime? I think he could end up being. I think it's a little bit early to tell, but it does look like this for this, for this reason. I'm not going to sit here and argue about stuff that we don't know about yet. You know, we don't quite know how the economy is going to play out. We don't know how deep social divisions are going to be. I think he will get a lot of flack in time and, and be remembered as the man without a plan, the guy who waltzed off stage just at the point where Britain really needed strong and stable leadership most. He's got his excuses for why he does that, but the fact that he surprised the rest of the Westminster village by just walking off off stage uh, all of a sudden, I think, will count heavily against it. But my real concern for David Cameron's legacy is, is this. David Cameron was essentially a moderate politician. He styled himself as a sort of centrist, answer to the Tory right, answer to extremist voices when he came in for the Tory uh, to the Tory leadership in 2005. He was handing out sapling trees to journalists at press conferences <laughs> to show how much he cared for the environment. He made, he made clear he wasn't interested in, a, in, a, in an ongoing conversation about Europe. But I just wonder whether, by the time we get to the 2020 election, David Cameron won't have given sort of moderate influences in politics a bad name because he has ended up crashing, in many ways, the legacy that he has left... If this government, the government that Theresa May has just formed, is unable to deal with, frankly, 
uh, problems in their in-tray that are beyond anything, definitely beyond anything that has been seen in my lifetime. Um, I am having conversations with MPs, Tory MPs, sensible Tory MPs, about the prospect of this new government possibly failing. If any of that happens by 2020, there will almost cert certainly be a lurch towards populism, a lurch towards easy answers, both on the right, both with UKIP that, that are looking to capitalise out of the Brexit situation, crying betrayal and suggesting people have been let down, particularly on immigration, and on the left, where people are looking for, again, simplistic, arguably extremist answers to some of the political and social problems that they face. I worry that David Cameron's legacy could be a march towards populism, which was exactly the thing that he set himself as the metric of being a success, a sort of centre-ground, centre stable, moderating, pragmatic individual. And he may have just tarnished that kind of role in politics. Now, John, you, you worked for another former Prime Minister. You mm. worked for Tony Blair in uh, Downing Street. <laughs> I imagine lots of other people occasionally list him as being the worst Prime Minister of their lifetime as well. How do, how do you think David Cameron's legacy will compare to Blair's? I think... Um Sam is too pessimistic. I think that David Cameron may well have tarnished the brand of moderate conservatism and so caused a problem to his own party that's lasting. But I do think that in terms of uh, equal marriage, that will be a lasting settlement, and that's a lasting settlement inside the Tory party on social issues. I think the reforms of, of education and health, which are conti a continuation of what Blair did in health and education, those show an ability to see something lasting beyond Cameron, it's lasted beyond Blair. And the real key in changing Britain for the future has always been not just cross-party but cross-government consensus. And that's what's happened. Uh, and the NHS is now safe in Tory hands. Nobody can ever say at the moment campaigning, you can't trust the Tories on the NHS. That's a huge achievement if you consider what he took over and the toxic uh, Tory brand and the toxic nature of their relationship with the NHS. I think he has been a failure in political terms because of Brexit, uh, and that will define him. I think he has been a success in showing you can have a centre-right progressive leadership. I think his economic record and George's economic record is going to look very, very, very doubtful because it's almost certain that the extreme austerity that was unnecessary was a major uh, force in driving working-class voters to vote to leave the European Union, which was not what either David or George wanted. And how much, because it's, you can talk about the less high-profile but laudable things that governments do, because mm. that's what governments do. We've seen in recent weeks, Tony Blair is totally defined by mm. Iraq, in a way that you can see David Cameron being totally defined by uh, Brexit. So it doesn't matter that Tony Blair opened lots of short start centres, because if you say to somebody, Tony Blair, they say Iraq. And it doesn't matter that David Cameron took same-sex civil partnerships and turned them into marriage when he also blundered into Britain falling out of the EU. The, 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 in the end, and time means, it's only the really big stuff that people remember. And unfortunately, Cameron's really big stuff is, is now negative. I, I, I agree with that, and I think that's where history settle in the end. But for Tony Blair, he's always got the Good Friday Agreement. And when you settle an 800-year-old dispute on these islands, then you have a fair claim to believing that in a hundred years, when people look back, they'll say that was a British problem that was solved by a British Prime Minister and the Middle East, um, we're not responsible for the Arab Spring, we're not responsible uh, for the failures in Libya or Syria. Uh, there's a generational struggle going on 
uh, to get secular societies uh, with rules-based economies. So I think Tony Blair may well look better in, in the perspective of Iraq in 30 years, but will never lose on the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland. Can I just ask one question, John? If you disagree with me, yeah. which Prime Minister in my lifetime was worse than David Cameron? Jim Callaghan was an appalling Prime Minister. In my noughties, I was yeah. unable to form a full judgment. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think no. I, I mean, and I, I mean, I am old enough to have been uh, an infant when Alec Douglas Hume was prime minister. I think he's a pretty poor post-war one, in, and Anthony Eden certainly in the post-war period. So I agree with your judgment about how far and how quickly Cameron has fallen. The question is: Is there anything that comes through from it? And I accept your pessimism about that, actually. I agree with Matt in that I think his Cameron's legacy, there's an enormous fissure now, which is Brexit, and everything post-Brexit will be seen as the result of the Brexit vote. So I don't, I mean, I love the idea that in five years' time we are analysing the ins and outs of the decision on tax credits, for example, but I suspect we won't be because I think this will seem so big and so all-consuming for the next two, five, ten, twenty years that everything that Cameron has achieved or failed at will be seen in that light. So I don't know how we're going to be able to differentiate those things. The, the We should think about what got us to this vote and how, for example, mm. if I look at tax credits, that was a kind of near miss. You know, they went down that yeah. route so hard. There yeah. was an opposition from, from Tories, from Labour. There were, everybody was screaming at them, don't do this. And they pushed and pushed and pushed and finally pulled off. Now... From a kind of from a perspective of a political journalist, you kind of go, oh, you know, that was that was a, and probably from the politicians as well, they thought that was sort of disaster avoided, but it probably wasn't disaster avoided in that yeah. for voters they're thinking, how you know how could you even have got close to that? That the lasting legacy of that near miss is actually the disaster in some ways. So we should measure it in that, in that way. But what I suspect yeah. is that actually those who have to deal with the fallout, so the three Brexiteers mm. now in May it'll almost be on their shoulders and it's, it'll be interesting to see whether we blame Cameron for getting us, for giving us the referendum and, and leading to the to the pain that is inevitably to come or whether we blame those who have to deal well, with... Well, that's what I wanted because actually what, what comes next is, does it, if, there, if, there is, if there is a Brexit disaster, does that end up being pinned on those who are currently in charge of sorting that out? Boris Johnson, Liam Fox and David Davis. More than the guy who sort of started it off in the beginning. It'll be interesting to see how that... Because that, that, what they can't do, what Boris Johnson and David Davis can't do, is sort of blame David Cameron for having called the referendum if it then doesn't sort of work out for the best, because they were the ones who wanted it. I think failure will have many forefathers, but I think there is a clear metric for how to judge David Cameron, and that will be the 2020 election. If the next three and a half years are a success, it will be Theresa May's success, because she will have a, um, tidied up an almighty mess. If it is a complete and utter failure, the next general election will be David Cameron's failure. Well, we haven't even discussed John Major or Gordon Brown. Does anybody have any views on either of those as to how they rank against David Cameron? Gordon Brown rose to the big challenge uh, of his premiership, which is a global financial crisis. And uh, with a care, with a, basically a lame duck caretaker president in the US, he took control of that globally. And that was very important. But it's also very, very clear, had there not been a crisis, he would not have known what to do as a prime minister. He was a man completely unfitted to be prime minister because he liked being chancellor because chancellors make one big decision a year, that's the budget, or maybe two because they do the autumn statement. The regular meetings, the discussions, uh, 
I remember a story from Inside Number 10. He went, why do I have to meet the president of Poland? The answer being, because you're the prime minister. <laughs> um, and the, so the, the, his, his deep personal frustration with the actual nature of the job. He didn't yeah, like yeah. checkers, wouldn't go to checkers. Nothing about the job appealed to him except the crisis, and he did do that well. nothing well. about the job appealed to him, fa- apart, apart from the fact that Tony had couldn't, it. Couldn't, he oh, apart it. from the fact that Tony could be, be pushed out. Yeah. 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 And John, Major, John Major was a curious mirror of that. Um, he too, once he got to number 10, didn't look like he was incredibly comfortable actually governing, but benefited from this extraordinary economic boom that took place during the mid-90s um, out of the embers of the crashing out of the ERM yeah. uh, at the start of that decade. And again, without that economic upside overseen by Ken Clark as Chancellor all the way through to 1997, a boom that then continued through into, yeah. into, the, into the Blair years, that, that became the sort of defining memory now, I think, along with um, the list of scandals which Labour did incredibly well in the run-up to 1997 to absolutely pin on Mr Major. It's interesting now, if you look at immediately what MPs or what Prime Ministers did after stepping down. I mean, Major is now a very respected voice. I think it's true to say Mm. that he can stand up and give a speech Mm. and people really do listen because he does it quite rarely, but he's still involved. Brown, obviously, Sam wrote this fantastic piece last year or the year before about Brown just went inside himself. I mean, he literally sort of hunkered down in in Fife and became a hermit. And what Cameron does is interesting. He said he will stand again in 2020. Frankly, I don't think we can believe him. I mean, it's the sort of thing you might say now and not follow through on. But I mean, he's remaining a a backbencher now, which is something um, Blair didn't do. It'd be really interesting to see what he does because he's acutely aware of what um, what came of Blair and will want to avoid that at all costs. But it's quite difficult choosing a job. You know, if he earns too much, he gets criticised. If he earns nothing at all, he can't keep the lifestyle that he, he's used to. So it'll be interesting to see what and he does. Also, and also, I think we talked about this last week, maybe the week before, he's only 49. He stood down as Prime Minister's 49. No Prime Minister has stood down under 50 for 100 years. So, I mean, you're, normally you're supposed to retire and go off and tend your roses or something, but that's not, you know, he probably thinks he's got another big job in him. But I but think the Cameron the- family project, I think Top Dog uh, in the Cameron family household is probably going to transfer to Samantha Cameron now. Uh, I think he's going to make sure that he's at home to do the school run so that she can go and expand her business and set up new businesses as much as uh, she wants at the moment. I think that is going to be the thing for David Cameron, which is, which is oddly utterly compatible with him staying in the Commons and being a backbencher um, because I think he needs to do a little bit to claw back some affection from other people. Here's a thought. If David Cameron had stayed as Prime Minister until September the 9th, I bet he would have had a really horrific time. I think the narrative would have started to turn against him. He would basically be there because he wanted to go to the G20 in early September so he could have his picture taken with an outgoing Barack Obama. (laughs) The economy, almost certain from the early signals we're getting, would start to be turning and there would be this ongoing sense of two and a half months without a plan even being able to be formulated because the Conservatives were in the middle of an elongated leadership contest. That would be ugly. That would have been horrible. So I think, to be honest, leaving early was the kindest thing that could have happened for David Cameron. That's politics past. David Cameron is now gone. He was the future once and all that. Uh, John, let's talk about what's happening in politics right now. Why doesn't he just go? My sentiments precisely, but not my words. I voted for him, went on the party member. I believed in him, but he's just not up to the job. Conversations like this are going on up and down the country amongst Labour Party members. There's a kind of uneasy truce, an understanding that as long as the people like me don't say, I told you so, then Corbyn believers will say just how disappointed they are with his leadership. So we're sort of in the midst of this this 
interminable Labour leadership challenge where there isn't a ch- they can't even decide who the challenger is. There's this big question about whether or not the Labour membership has changed or can be changed to bring about a different result the last time around. So we had a poll in the Times uh, this morning which shows that Corbyn is 20 points ahead, either Angela Eagle or Owen Smith. And that's a lot of £25 members to sign up in 48 hours to try and try and change that. But you think, you think the party membership is turning? The party membership in London is either young or and professional, or it's uh, older and professional. It is resolutely pro-European Union. I, my, my most recent branch meeting, 20-plus people came out. Only one said they'd still vote for Corbyn. The others were deeply disappointed on Europe, deeply disappointed on the lack of housing policy, deeply disappointed across the board with the leadership. And that that is the sense that I have, which is that at the moment it's an abstract fight in the membership, but about a third of the party members live in London, a lot more live in the southeast than live in the northeast. And those voters are there for the taking, provided it's the right candidate, which is why I think Owen Smith, for example, has played a very clever uh, campaign, allowing Angela Eagle to go first to get the NECs to find the rules. He doesn't look like the splitter. He comes out. He's only backed by the left. He's not backed by the right. He's no Blairite tint or tinge to him. He's, he trails the possibility of a second European referendum, which is absolute catnip to a lot of the Corbyn supporters, the older London-based ones. And he also says what we need is a £200 billion uh, spending spree to reflate the economy. So he doesn't define himself as being, I'm not for austerity, I'm anti-austerity. He goes, here's a chunky piece of spending, let's do that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Iraq, but let's have a War Powers Act. So he's, he's quite interesting by he frames the future rather than battling about the past. And one of Angela Eagle's problems is she's got a lot of baggage to talk about. But do you th- is it at all possible that Corbyn doesn't just win again and win with an even stronger mandate on an even more extreme left prospectus? Oh, look, I think it's entirely possible that he wins again. Um, the way to beat him was to keep him off the ballot paper. I've won no doubt about that. It was true fa- first time round, it was true this time round. Um, I, I think that the, um, the issue that... Uh, is there for the taking, and it's really hard, is you've also got to exclude people from the electorate. So the NEC have issued procedural guidance which says if somebody supported another party last year, they've got to go to the NEC to be looked at. So you could have a process of knocking another 50,000 votes off this. But in the end, the question is, um, can every MP who declared their lack of confidence in Corbyn, can they turn... And can they convert their, their own membership? Can they turn that into votes? Can they actually go out there? I think it's incredibly hard. If he gets back, the next step has to be, at the first PMQs, that he comes back as leader, nobody who doesn't support him sits in the chamber. They leave him sitting there uh, with the people who support him, show exactly how isolated he is. Because this has to be wave after wave after wave, because moderate Labour Party members can't let him have... Labour's name, Labour's heritage, and to destroy it in this kind of ultra-left cult. Faye, do you think any of this matters? Is the Labour Party beyond, you know, being saved by Owen Smith offering a £200 billion spending spree? It matters enormously because, when we'll come to this, the Tories are not in a safe place, you know. There's a kind of slightly weird air of 
happiness around the Tories and just because of, I think, because things are new and because Cameron went out with a bit of a glow, and we'll come into this in a bit, but no, I do think it matters enormously because you can't bank on the fact that this current government is a stable government. The, I mean, just talking about Corbynistas outside of London, mm. I think a real problem at the moment is and I talk to people who are big Corbyn supporters and I know quite a few of them, not just young, much older as well, who are they cannot see what he's done wrong. They're, they have absolutely no sense of him making any failings, any mistakes. They like a new form of politics. They do appreciate that um, he's not electable at the moment, but they say, you know what, we'll have a period of unelectability because we'd rather have that and change the face of politics and, and have, a, have a leader who we feel we have something in common with than have another Blair, for example. So I think it's quite tricky. I can't see how you create a new potential replacement for for Corbyn in the form of say Smith who is not massively far from Corbyn in terms of policies but why would they go for a, a replacement for Corbyn who's who's not massively different from Corbyn and when they think that Corbyn is just a victim you know they they think they're going to be defiant in the face of what they see as bullies and I'm, this is just mm. a, a different view but it I re- it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Really struggle to see how our poll today will change dramatically over summer, even with a full um, leadership contest. Although two months is a long time. I was just some. I was looking through the tables. The only fifty odd percent of the people who say they would back Corbyn again think he's likely to win a general election, mm. and one in ten of them say he's likely to lose in the election. But that doesn't. Sit, that just doesn't seem to be a. That's just not a concern of people who, who back Jeremy Corbyn. The biggest reason that people support Jeremy Corbyn is because that they say he is principled. The second biggest reason that they say they back Jeremy Corbyn is because they say he shares our values. And overwhelmingly, Labour members feel both of those things about Corbyn in a way that they clearly don't about the other two. The most positive attribute you can say about Angela Eagle is 38% of Labour members saying that she is competent <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, as opposed to 80% saying that those things about uh, about Jeremy Corbyn but what we're really dealing with I think to pick up on Faye's point is not just the, the re- is the, we really have to hone in on why Corbynistas don't see his failings and that is because of an absolutely fascinating combination of the way that he campaigned but much more importantly technological change the reason that they don't hear any of his failings is because they don't hear or read about any of his failings they are reading about Corbyn's progress on Facebook and they are reading it on Facebook using feeds that are not newspapers but are social media feeds from Jeremy Corbyn's office and Jeremy Corbyn's supporters and people of their own worldview which tell them 
that Jeremy Corbyn is winning all these victories across Britain and is changing the landscape of British politics. And in the echo chamber of their lives, they are not interacting with the criticism. This is having a profound effect on the way we do our politics. And we are so far behind in noticing this, um, that that's quite key. And in fact, we're the enemy of this. We at the Times try to do completely the opposite and not narrow cast and give people an echo chamber back of their pre-existing prejudice. We try and do the reverse. But there is a whole new world of information out there, much of it based on, frankly, untruths. And I've been quite shocked by the number of things that are simply wrong a whole load of my friends thought a, a whole series of things about uh, uh, about Stephen Crabb, which just had no basis on fact, but were being endlessly shared on social media to his detriment. And probably, probably quite a few of them were fairly liableless. But there was no trust. They weren't going to any trusted sources to correct them of this misapprehension. And they also don't pick up on the criticism of Jerry Corbyn um, in the way that we uh, readers of The Times would do. And I think this is a big problem. So I think that this is one of the reasons you're getting political polarisation on the right and the left, because people are telling each other what they want to hear. Just picking up on that Facebook thing, I saw something at the weekend. There was an image being shared on Facebook of uh, about the expenses of Jeremy Corbyn, Owen Smith and Andrew Eagle. And Jeremy, it was over five years. Jeremy Corbyn was about £5,000. I don't even know if these yeah. figures are right. Andrew Eagles were about 50000 and Owen Smith's, we argue, say 150000 and I just pointed out to the person who posted it, it's because Owen Smith is an MP from Wales, Wales and has to travel to and from Wales and have a second home. It's not because he's but he's clear, clearly trying it's to imply these sort large. of... Yeah, he's going absolutely wild on the expense account. But that's the, that is the uh, thing. Just very quickly, John, before yeah. we move on, there were, all of the moderates, as we call them, the, the yeah. non-Corbyn Labour MPs... Is the it Labour not, Party, as I is call it. it. <laughs> well, is it not the, well, isn't not the case that the Labour Party, that they joined and wanted to form a government just doesn't exist anymore it it has been completely swamped by not just a small over enthusiastic block but a couple of hundred thousand people who they now think they are the Labour Party isn't the Labour Party which you and the moderates are hanging up isn't it just gone no, the Labour Party's never gone. There's 172 MPs, plus more probably now, who don't have confidence in in Jeremy Corbyn. They've all got voters. There's 9 million voters who voted for the Labour Party in 2015. There's 12 million voters who are needed to vote for the Labour Party if it's going to win the election. And in the end, what has interested me is watching the arc of disappointment, the people who actually <laughs> believed... Is that a Harry Potter film, <laughs> the arc of disappointment? <laughs> It should be, shouldn't it? But the, the, the way that they, the, the believers have stopped believing, the question is, can you capitalise on that or are enough new people coming in all the time? In the end, the trade unions are going to have to be the people who rescue the Labour Party, as they did in the 80s, um, that eventually trade union members need a Labour Party the stat that, that can actually achieve things by being in government. Um, and next year, Len McCluskey's up for election. On a very, very small turnout, he won his election. Uh, a, a change there... He not another leadership challenge. Particularly, particular, <laughs> well, there's a, lead, there's a candidate, candidate going to challenge him from, from the West Midlands, and I'd be watching very carefully what Tom Watson is doing in the uh, Unite General Secretary leadership. He's not backing uh, Len McCluskey, and Len is taking the wrong position on defence and Trident, and defence is one of the biggest sectors that Unite organise. There are more games to play, um, but it, it takes us, it gives us two problems. One uh, is it appears to put Labour further and further away from uh, an election it might win. The other one is it's bad for the government and therefore bad for the country not to have an effective opposition because 
in the end, Theresa May will feel she manages to her right, the margin in her party. And as Sam said, that's a right that's being sent mad by social media in the same way the left is being sent mad. <laughs> yeah. And that, in a sense, there's a group of centrist MPs who've they probably represent two thirds of the, of the of the actual parliament who are in danger of being isolated each in their own party. Labour having it now, um, the Tories could well have their own Corbyn moment. Just to pick up on your point, I do think it is slightly bizarre, the system of membership, the idea that you can sign up for... Th I mean, so if you... We didn't, as we all know, we didn't sort of 40 years ago have any sense of members selecting leaders on, on in either party. The the idea that if you're a member, then you're kind of actively involved in your party is all very well, but then that's totally overridden by the idea of signing up for £3 or £25. It, I do wonder whether going forward there will be a, a, an overhaul of this because it does seem unsustainable it's i know it's easy to say the grassroots support corbyn let's listen to the grassroots they're the real people but the mps have been elected by their constituents so they also represent an enormous number of people i think that gets lost in the in the maelstrom well let's um let's throw it forwards and uh, think about the future but first let's have a little song thank you very much Doo -doo. right the prime minister's little hum last week brought light relief amid the maelstrom was it the theme from the West Wing, Winnie the Pooh or the Great Escape? But whether he hummed for nerves or relief, we can take it as a sign of the pain and turbulence that awaits MPs who re remain at the political coalface. The new government may not last for long in its current form. News junkies and sadists rejoice. Over the next few years, you'll be in for a treat. Let's uh, gloss away the uh, the current feeling of the May government, that it's all it's all marvellous and new and shiny and the honeymoon, you know is still the honeymoon's still there at the moment you think you think this is all going to come I think crashing it down could come could. crashing down the amount of change that we will go through in the next couple of years never mind beyond is enormous and is probably beyond what anybody's quite trying to get at yet we just can't enumerate it three I mean think very cannily may has put three pro brexit um, uh, individuals in charge of the negotiations that means that we won't be able to claim that the deals that they get are sort of half-hearted because really it was somebody who wanted Remain. That means that if things go wrong very badly, she can lay that blame on the shoulders of those those Brexiteers. The, the power play between Boris Johnson, David Davis and Liam Fox will be quite interesting. There was, we had some very interesting quotes yesterday from David Davis which seemed to suggest that he thought he was in charge of Liam Fox. He then got kind of knocked down on that. It doesn't look like the Brexit department is going to run the trade negotiations then, I mean, I assume that May will take a big role in all this, but she also might want to keep slightly at arm's length so that she can do, as I've just said, place the blame elsewhere. That area is going to be messy. And then you've got the economy, which we just... It's all very well, very early on, claiming that we're seeing the impacts of Brexit. I don't think we really are. I mean, you can claim that the, the Japanese deal with arm that was just tied up yesterday is the is the impact of Brexit, but we're not really there yet. We haven't really seen the, the full impact, the... The pound obviously dropped very, very steeply straight after Brexit, but, but stabilised very quickly afterwards. Some people claim, oh, we're through it. You know, that was it. <laughs> that is not yeah. it. Yeah. And, and we've also got the, the, the global economy and there's a lot of instability around it. I mean, say Turkey really does go downhill, that's going to have a massive impact on the migrant flow through um, to Europe. 
There are so many unknowns at the moment. I mean, the number of people who've said to me in the past few weeks, so much news, please make it stop. I mean, it's sort of a joke and it's actually, we are living in an extraordinary time and it probably will go calm for, for a short amount of time, but it will get messy again. And therefore, this stability that we feel we've got for a very short time now is going to be a thing of the past. Sam, how, how much worse do you think it will be as a result of the reshuffle that Theresa May did? Because she has... She's made enemies where maybe she didn't need to, and she's brought in people that she maybe she didn't need to and sacked others. What impact do you think that will have? Because at the moment, those who are sacked are biting their tongues, but they're all saying privately that you, just you wait till September. I wholeheartedly agree with um, Faye's overall thesis about how pessimistic we should be in the in the medium term with one very important caveat that's important uh, that I should add right away which is that everything has a much higher chance of failing unless we get a proper summer holiday because I think things are people are about to go mad they are so tired <laughs> it's just within uh, the time and, that, uh, and I'm going to um, ascribe that to the Westminster oh. bubble is about to go even more mad unless it gets a proper summer holiday but look the defining feature of Theresa May's government, it's nothing to do with her, is the fact that she has a majority of 12, a working majority of 18. It takes 10 people to decide that they don't like something and it gets voted down and there's parliamentary gridlock. Now, look, it's in th- that context that Theresa May did her reshuffle. So, yes, there are a lot of Brexiteers at the top of government now. Um, some people chunter about the appointment of Boris Johnson. Isn't he just a showman? Does he really have the gravitas? Is he the person that we want on the world stage? Hasn't he said lots of inconvenient <coughs> things in the past? But the bottom line is what her cabinet reshuffle was, was a juggling act to try and keep on board as many of the 330 MPs in her party for as long as possible. And that's why you've got on the one side, uh, Andrea Ledsom, who, of course, had 84 MPs, lead bangers, as some people called them, backing her. <laughs> You've got prominent right-wingers. Led, can I just say that led, there have been a lot of, sort of made-up things during the last four weeks. Lead bangers is one of my favourites. Uh, <laughs> uh, I probably ought to say alleged to be called lead bangers. Lead bangers. <laughs> Yet to be denied. I thought, I thought uh, lead arts was good. Lead bangers is good, but lead bangers is terrific. Um, and so that's why you've got Andrea Ledsom in the cabinet, despite some of the things that she was reported saying in the Times only last week about male nannies. That's why you've got David Davis and Liam Fox, prominent Brexiteers, uh, at the top of uh, of her cabinet as well. She took on and purged the mo- the, um, the the sort of modernisers, George Osborne's and Michael Goves and all of that. But what's important to remember about them, is, and, and there were still some Govites in tears yesterday in the Commons, is that they're a very small faction. You can pick on them because they're tiny. Um, but the rest of them, particularly take, it the right, take much of them to be the ten. Uh, that that's, that's, that actually goes back to your point that the a, a couple of small groups of people are annoyed, and suddenly your majority's gone. Uh, absolutely, I think the bigger problem that David uh, that Theresa May is going to have with George Osborne and Michael Gove is if they suddenly decide that they've also got non-exec positions and start just slinking off and mi- missing votes. Um, and on one level they can say, well, we're elder statesmen of the Conservative Party, we're following a tradition of what people in our position have done before, but in reality are causing massive parliamentary headaches because this is a government on a knife edge. But not in a knife edge in the way that John Majors was, where um, it had, at worst, the Maastricht Treaty to, to, to see through Parliament. This is um, uh, on a knife edge in a situation where we are facing choices about the existential future of our country that are completely unresolved at this point. Go on, John, you cheer us up. Well, I think it's probably worse than has just been described. 
I think that for uh, probably three reasons. One is we know from uh, our ambassador uh, what the experience of having David Davis, a Europe, Europe minister, was like, which was that every morning a detailed set of instructions was sent to Brussels by David Davis telling our, our team what to do. Um, and what our team were meant to do is say no. Just say no, 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 no. David Davis thinks negotiation is saying, this is my position, and no, I don't want what you're offering. That's bad. Worse than that is Liam Fox. Any fool can do a trade deal. Like, seriously, any fool can do a trade deal as long as they accept what the other guys are offering. The People's Republic of China can see him coming a mile off, and they're going to offer him a trade deal, which is massively disadvantageous to the UK, but massively advantageous to them. Um, and we're going to see this happening across across the pitch. Finally, we've got this underlying problem, which we have not sorted British productivity. Productivity uh, appears to have crashed around the time of the oil price crash because most of our productivity gain in the last 30 years has been in the North Sea oil. Well, there's no oil, and it doesn't, and because the extraction costs are so high, that the yield is falling. So we're back to the issue, how do you actually get Britain to be a more productive country? No party in the last 30 years has sorted that one out. That is what makes us wealthy tomorrow, the year after, the decade after. So we're, so we're sitting with an underlying crisis of skills and productivity, on top of which we've now chosen to have Brexit. So I fully agree with Faye. We have seen nothing yet. And the, 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 the management problem that Theresa May will have, in my view, is this. The, the small group of people on the left of the Tory party, the modernizers, they're the ones who can ally with the Labour Party, the Liberals and the SNP on an issue which the Labour Party, the Liberals and the SNP will vote, will vote on. The right can never unite with Labour or the SNP on an issue, so she'll try managing to a right. It'll be the left who find issues on which they unite uh, on a moderate centrist progressive position. That's the real worry. She'll be thinking, I don't need to worry about the Commons because Labour are off on, you know, off on some random thing, but, and I'm, I'll look after the right. The, the centre ground is going to be the biggest problem in the Commons, in my view. And if we come out of the Commons and think about the voters who voted for Brexit in the first place, I mean, it's an off-stated but true fact that if the economy does go downhill, they will be very badly affected, especially those in the Midlands and the North, for example, the, the ones we didn't expect to vote for Brexit who did vote for Brexit. If we then game play and think that maybe we don't end up clamping down on immigration, we remain part of a single market and we don't have full control over free, free movement of people... I'm really interested to watch it. It may be that, that people can be placated and we say we've got this curb and I don't I don't think it's beyond us to get some kind of deal, to be honest, um, where we have some um, power over, over immigration and remain a part of the, the single market. But if we don't, I mean, they are going to say, what the hell do we vote for? You've then got the 52% who voted for Brexit saying, hang on, you know, we wanted to come down on immigration, we didn't get it, and the 48% who didn't vote for it in the first place coming together. And, you you know, I don't want to gameplay it too much, but we did have some protests happening just after Brexit vote. We could get go in that direction. It's not the beyond the realm's possibility. I think the tests that people will apply is whether or not it looks like we've taken control. So if Theresa May pushes an idea that you have free movement of labour, whereby you can't come to Britain unless you've got a job offer, uh, what UKIP and some on the Tory right and indeed some on the left will say is, but is that control, given that an, an unlimited number of people could come in with job offers, and I think there'll be a big political price to pay for that. It comes back to re really where we started. The verdict on the referendum where David Cameron has ended us up with 
um, will be in 2020 or whenever the next general election is, because it could be for all the reasons you've just said that we see a UKIP surge, a, a far right surge. They are who are mobilising in Westminster politics in a way I've not seen before, uh, and the SWP likewise, who've got a greater stake in the Labour Party than they've ever had before, and surges on the left and the right in extremist ways are going to be very, very damaging for the future of Britain. I would put money on UKIP spending large amounts of money and organisational effort in the belt of coalfield community seats, which are had very high UKIP vote. They've, they've tapped into a vein of hostility around immigration, but also hostility to metropolitan labour. And if you think who represents the coal the, the coalfield seats, it's Yvette Cooper and Ned Miliband. It's Mary Cray. Um, it's Caroline Flint. It's quite easy to start to see how you you don't go for the whole of Labour heartlands. You go specifically for the for those coalfield areas who've got that deep sense. And the Resolution Foundation identified that people who were hit hardest in the 80s by Thatcher were the most likely to be anti the European Union, not the people who suffered the dislocations of the 90s or uh, the post global financial crisis. So I think. Uh, that we're going to see a massive eruption. Uh, this isn't a settlement now with the, the Theresa May government. It may look quiet now, but politics is definitely not going to be boring for a very long time. Good. <laughs> so no summer holiday. So no summer holiday. Yeah. Well, I'm going yeah. whatever. I don't care what happens. <laughs> now then, you can let us know what you think the coming weeks and months might hold. Email webbox at thetimes.co.uk. You can tweet us at timeswebbox or find us on Facebook where you can also see videos of me discussing the latest developments in Westminster with Times colleagues. Do subscribe to the Red Box podcast via iTunes or on uh, your Android device. It will drop into your phone when we return later in the summer. And as ever, if you want political news, analysis and gossip landing into your inbox when Parliament returns, then sign up for my free morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box email. But for now, thank you for listening, not just this week, but over the last few months. Who knows what will have happened by the time we reconvene. But for now, from Sam, John, Faye and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.